It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including the Beer Bible. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? Well, by the time the listener hears this, it will be passed, but as we record this, I'm hot. I'm very, very hot. Yeah, we're in the midst of the Pacific Northwest heat wave. We've escaped most of the summer heat, but we're getting our share in a big wallop for what four or five days right now. Yeah, and uh, what yesterday? Yesterday was officially 108, I think. Uh, I think it was cooler than that, according to the National Weather Service. Maybe 105. Uh, I think somewhere is 108. Maybe maybe different part of of the state but anyway because there's it set some august record of all time all time august record heat yeah down i think uh it seems like maybe down in where you work corvallis eugene area it was it was even hotter yeah it can get pretty hot down in the valley yeah uh i'm of course now trying to find out the actual oh, data even though i can confirm that Oh, 108 at the airport. Yeah, yeah. I can confirm that the official reading was 108. All right. <clears throat> but airport's often hotter. It was hotter than my my house. Didn't get much past 100, but maybe 103. I don't know. Yeah, my weather app said 103. But anyway, the listener doesn't care. <laughs> no, no, we're hot. We're hot. Uh, I have a couple of little ACs cranking as best they can. It keeps us from boiling, and you know, so we survive. We survive. It's eighty for now. For now, it's ten a.m. and it's eighty-three, and my house is already pushing eighty on the inside. So I'm not very happy, but I'll I'll survive. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it'll be it'll be uh, by the end. Of, it's uh, Tuesday today, and by Friday, I think it'll be back to sort of more typical temperatures. So. Yeah, that's what I have. Hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> Hang in. All there. right, but otherwise, I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, uh, I'm doing pretty good uh all things considered this gives us a chance to to tackle a big household project which is to start tackling our storage area in the basement very exciting i know uh but it's one place in the house that's cool so. right right part of the stuff by the way that's down there is all the homebrewing equipment um which has been left unused for years and i'm not sure when, when, if, when we'll get back to it, but it made me think, you know, maybe I should brew beer. And then it made me also think, you know, there's people who do it so much better than me and I can buy what they make <laughs> for not too much money. Yeah. So maybe I should just stick with the pros. Well, I'll just say um, the journey is the, is the, the thing that you should care about when you make home beer, home brew beer, I think not the, uh, not, you can't make as good a beer, but you know. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But I feel like a lot of that journey is done now. You know, the whole process, the spending years making beer was fantastic. I just, I'm sort of at reached a point at which uh, the, the 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 learning, the knowledge that comes with it, the fun, the excitement has a little bit dissipated, and now I just kind of, I kind of just think that my my <laughs> my beer drinking. Uh, I was going to say my beer drinking days are numbered, but honestly, I don't drink that much beer. And so when I drink beer, I like to drink really good beer. And and when you make five gallons and suddenly, you know, you feel obliged to drink that. Um, yeah. it, I, you know, I guess that's what's good about homebrew clubs. You can drink, uh, brew a bunch of beer and then give it away. Um, so anyway, I just, I, I thought I mentioned since I'm doing a little project there, that there it is. Maybe one day there'll be something fun to try and, and I'll do it, but. But for now, uh, sticking with the pros. Excellent. All right. Well, I know that uh, uh, you have a pretty uh, meaty interview here. So why don't we just jump right into the topic of today's podcast? Let's do it. As everyone knows, the great lager brewing regions are Bavaria, Bohemia, and Austria. Wait, Austria? Sure, it was famous in the last century for Vienna lager, but what has it done lately? We have Franz Hofer on the show today to answer this very question. Franz splits his year between Oklahoma and Vienna and writes about Lagerlands on his website, Tempest in a Tankard. Austria is, 
no kidding, a truly special place where one of the world's major styles wets the whistles of a nation, while somehow staying hidden from the rest of the world. We'll hear about this fascinating place soon, but first, the news. We almost skipped the news this week to make room for the interview, but we had to know one item. The large pharmaceutical and cannabis company Tilray announced it was acquiring eight brands or breweries from Anheuser-Busch. These include significant portions of what was once called Craft Brew Alliance, including Widmer and Red Hook, but not notably Kona. And in a curious twist, the deal also includes AB's own in-house brand Shock Top, which it launched as a response to Blue Moon success. So, yeah, we, I, I didn't want to get too far down the road before we talked about this. Yeah, this one is, uh, uh, I'm going to say crazy. This one's interesting. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on one hand, you've got the uh, AB InBev basically jettisoning its, its what, high end? What, what, what was their moniker? They, they they called it the high end and then they changed it to Brewers Collective, but they kept the high end, which is very confusing. So when you go on the website, it says both. So I don't know. Anyway, it, it signals one that they're basically just jettisoning this whole craft beer experiment, um, yep. which is fascinating. Yep. Um, but, you know, they think like a big corporation and they're looking at numbers and the numbers in the craft brew segment are down. Uh, and so... Uh, um, you can kind of understand that. Uh, what Tilray is doing is pretty interesting. Uh, cannabis business sucks right now. Uh, yes. You're also you're hamstring by federal rules. Um, uh, although is Tilray a Canadian company? Is that right? Uh, you know, I thought they were, but they're actually U.S. based because they did a merger okay. with Afria, and Afria was the Canadian based one. But I guess their headquarters are now in the U.S. Okay. All right. Uh, and, um, you know, I guess it sort of makes sense synergistically. If you're in the Tilray boardroom, maybe you can kind of leverage the synergies between cannabis and craft beer. Um, but uh, it's not like they're, you know, they're hitching their wagon to a rocket ship. I think they just have a lot of cash and they need to, they need to sort of get it legit in a way, right? Uh, they, they need to be able to have a business line that allows them access to all of the federal banking and and uh, so on. So I'm guessing it's kind of a more about that. Tilray also previously had um, acquired, what, three breweries? Uh, four. I don't know what they are. <laughs> you're looking at me like you're expecting me. Yeah, to I was. That. I was like, you're going to say what it's like. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not. I wouldn't even guess. The, I'll make it wrong. I think I think the big one was Sweetwater, which was their they put right. their there it is. Uh, into the water with Sweetwater, which was a kind of cannabis branded craft brewery from Georgia. Uh, they had a uh -huh. called 420, and they used hop hash. Uh, they were just very uh, weed adjacent, so it seemed like a good yeah. way to, to get into uh, an adjacent industry without getting too far yeah. from weed. And that's how they well. It also means that they're not entirely inexperienced. So maybe, maybe they they've already figured this out and they know what they're doing. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where they take these brands. It includes some pretty big brands here in the Northwest: Widmer, Red Hook, sort of more legacy brands, plus Ten Barrel, which is kind of a hip hop happening one. I, yeah, I was a bit surprised to see AB and Bev get rid of that. But um, yeah, I think yeah, they, we'll, we'll see. I think they would go, have gotten rid of anything that that uh, maybe except Kona uh that Tilray had asked for right? it seems like they just want out now which actually makes a ton of sense uh the reason they got into craft beer was because they thought that it was going to uh, continue its its growth curve and overtake domestic uh loggers or at least become a significant rival and they felt like couldn't lay, leave that on the table that's been flat for several years now and big yeah. companies like Anheuser-Busch are just not really well positioned to run companies like craft breweries because they're built for scale. They're built to make one beer. They're not built built to make uh, under one brand several beers um, that sell tiny amounts. It's just too much complexity for what they're what they're geared to do. This is sort of the opposite side of scale. Scale works when you're doing efficient things. When you're doing inefficient things, it doesn't work so well. Um, yeah, but, and it's not just 
it's not just the brewing, but it's also the marketing and the distribution and all that stuff. Just yeah. it's very complex when you're adding all these little brands in between. Um, so yeah, I guess so. Uh, Kona, they cap Kona's been doing well. Uh, sort of trying to build into a national brand, so I can see I can see why they kept that. Um, I assume they're keeping Goose Island. They kept Goose Island, and I don't know that they have any particular love of Goose Island, which is one of the, the sick mans of their portfolio at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe it's probably the biggest uh, uh, reason why um, they might be, you know, just deciding this whole endeavor was was no longer viable because they put a lot of time and effort into building Goose Island to a national brand and it never quite worked. I found one hopeful note before we move on to the interview. Um, I'll say that I think this could be really good for Widmer. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing if it will breathe some new life back into a local brand that was once significant. And you know, I wrote I wrote a biography of the Widmer brothers, so I have some mm -hmm. connection and some uh, I don't know personal stake. I feel like now in that brewery, uh, and it was really sad to just watch it completely uh, kind of go away in this in this state so i'm excited yeah. to see maybe if the they, they got the brewery tilray got the brewery so the brewery which now uh is not going to be producing kona um which is no longer which is mainly what it was making um yeah they're gonna have to fill that up with something so they should have real interest in rehabilitating widmer and red hook and um i don't know what they're gonna do with 10 barrel 10 barrel already has two breweries in the state so interesting yeah yeah we'll we'll uh see it it, it uh you wouldn't think it would be any worse <laughs> no exactly exactly it seems <laughs> like it's got to be uh for for people who are fans of that brand it's got to be a, a positive step yeah all right well we have a media interview so why don't we uh haste towards that um would you like to set up what we're about to listen to here you know we we talk enough in the the uh, pod or the interview that I probably don't need to do a lot of setup. Um, I'll just mm -hmm. a little bit of background, um, uh, which I didn't, I don't think I mentioned too much uh, in the intro to Franz, but um, uh, Franz is the reason that I was recently in Oklahoma. He invited me to, to down there to speak to homebrewers. And we intended to do this interview uh, at a pub while we were down there, but I abandoned my microphone um, in one of those moments of <laughs> old, <laughs> old man old manhood and uh, uh, we never got it done. I did get my microphone back, so that's cool. Um, but uh, anyway, we did it on Zoom and um, I think it's quite interesting. It's, it's a pretty nerdy interview. Franz is a PhD historian. So mm -hmm. uh, we get into some great history and you're gonna hear a story here that you will literally not hear anywhere else. Um, and I think it's super fascinating. I think it's one of the most interesting places on the planet, particularly just because it's so unknown. Uh, so, and actually, I hope you listen to this because I know you haven't had a chance to listen to it. So you should tune in because I think you'd find it fascinating too. <laughs> I will. I will do so. Well, why don't we? Uh, why don't we get to it right now? All right. All right. Well, we are here today with Franz Hofer, who is in his uh, office in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, and I am looking through an uh, internet video uh, screen at him. And uh, I was just recently in that house, so I actually recognize it. Um, Franz is, is a friend of mine, and he originally reached out before I visited Vienna uh, in 2019, which seems very recently but i guess it's now four years ago um and and franz showed me around vienna uh and we had a lovely time and i've often wanted to return to the the idea of austrian beer and having just recently seen franz i thought it'd be great to get him here so we could talk to him but i don't want to introduce franz uh, in terms of his professional life because it's kind of a tangled web and i will certainly <laughs> screw it up so franz Tell us why you spend half the year in Austria and why, you know, you're, you're our expert here. Why, why are you an expert on Vienna? What are you doing there? Um, 
Hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to give you all the uh, the um, the Coles Notes version. That's the Canadian version of Cliff Notes. Um, That's right. So you... For those of you wondering, I have I have the the most quintessentially Canadian name you can ever imagine, Franz Hofer. Um, and uh, that's, you know, because of my name, that's sort of what got me to Austria in the first place. So just very briefly, um, I have uh, a PhD in German and Japanese history uh, with a specialty in the modern area, cultural and intellectual history, uh, but also with a further subspecialty in memorial sites and museums. It's what I wrote my dissertation on. Uh, so, um, after I finished up, um, I had a postdoc at Cornell, and then when I finished that up, I got a postdoc, um, uh, a Mellon ACLS postdoc at the Wien Museum, or the Vienna um, Museum, well, it's the, 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 the City History Museum in Vienna. It's there for two years, and um, great time, wonderful time. Uh, I was doing outreach for the museum, and on the strength of that, I uh, met the director of a place called IES, which stands for uh, Institute of European Studies, and uh, it was founded with Marshall money in um, 1950, 1951 or thereabouts, initially to teach uh, Viennese and Austrians about democracy, and the joke now is now American exchange students come over and we teach them about democracy. So um, that's uh, uh, what I do over there, and that's why I'm over there for... Um, six months of every, well, four to six months of every year. Uh, so I, uh, I've i been involved pretty deeply and intimately with Vienna, although I don't write a lot about Vienna and Austria, but I, I have lived there um, for much of the last eight years. So that's-, that's Very uh, good. Well, and having, been, having had you tour me around, I know you are uh, an excellent uh, resource. Um, and because you are a historian, uh, and because everything that most people know about Austrian beer starts with Vienna lager, mm -hmm. I think it probably makes sense for us to go back to the, uh, I don't know how far you want to go back, at least the, the, <laughs> at least back to 1841 and move okay. forward. Um, and let's, let's touch on the beer history, but also why don't you describe to us, uh, what, what are we dealing with in terms of uh, political geography here? Who, who controls Vienna and how much of the land beyond Vienna that they control when all this starts? Okay, so uh, well, one thing I'll say is, uh, um, um, Jeff, you mentioned uh, <laughs> to really reel it in when it comes to history. First of all, um, I, I'm, I'm not a historian of Austria. I'm not a historian of the Habsburg Empire, but so we won't go all the way back to um, the Austria, the it's called the Eastern Marches of the Holy Roman Empire under Charlemagne, the Carolingian. I think, I think listeners are happy to hear that. So we we will just glide right over all of that. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and uh, I, I'll I'll actually take a step back. If so, Austria um, has actually been uh, a political entity. This is important. I have to take a, a you know a few centuries step back here just just to actually say that because Jeff, you were mentioning maybe some people won't really realize just in terms of modern and contemporary conceptions of nation states what Austria is. Austria, long story short, Austria was a duchy or dukedom uh, from about the time of the Babenbergs. Um, Bamberg, they also were in. Um, Vienna and in Bamberg, um, and um, and then eventually became the seat of power of uh, the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire. Now, a lot of stuff happened, and eventually, um, the empire was kind of broken up into smaller pieces as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, um, and then uh, Austria was a dominant member of a confederation with with. Prussia, so um, basically under the Habsburgs, but also the uh, the, the Prussian monarchs as well. Um, that eventually blew up um, as a result of warfare, as a lot of things do. Uh, Austria became a um, a republic in 1918. So that's the um, the short version of the uh, uh, political history of Austria. Uh, so in terms of beer. 
I want to take a step back a little bit before Vienna Lager uh, to um, Emperor Joseph II. Joseph II was the son of uh, Maria Theresia. I'm going to guess if a lot of you have heard of Maria Theresia. She uh, had, she was the empress who had. Don't guess that, man. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maria Theresia. She, uh, the, the Empress of Austria in the, uh, the uh, period in the 1700s, and she was responsible for, for building Schönbrunn, which you might know. It's a nice um, yellow palace out in uh, Western Vienna. And her son was Joseph II. He reigned from uh, 1765 to 1790. Um, he's also known in historiography as an enlightened despot or enlightened monarch. So what that means is he started slowly modernizing, or actually fairly rapidly modernizing Austria uh, and and his realms, and uh, so he's you know it, oh, he opened up his hunting preserve. Um, and so if you've ever been to to Vienna, you might have been to the Prater with the big Ferris wheel and all that stuff that used to be uh, his hunting preserve. Um, loosened um, a lot of social regulations um, and also started loosening guild restrictions. So how does this affect the brewing industry? Well, it laid the foundations for an absolute explosion of the Austrian brewing industry uh, in the 19th century. Prior to that, uh, the Bürgerspital, which is sort of a municipal civil hospital um, in Vienna, had more or less a monopoly on brewing for a number of centuries. There were other breweries around, but they had a pretty strong monopoly, um, mainly because the Habsburg emperors uh, wanted to placate the landed gentry of Lower Austria, which is the state surrounding Vienna, because the landed gentry were hostile to the Habsburgs. The landed gentry also just so happened to have a lot of holdings, holdings of, of wine. So I want to actually underscore that right now. Can't talk about the history of uh, beer in Austria and in particular in Vienna without talking about the history of wine. Um, wine is what really kind of, in a lot of ways, held beer brewing down. Um, I mean, I, I talk a lot about Vienna. Uh, in some ways, it does sort of stand in for the history of brewing in Austria, uh, mainly because Vienna was the power center and lower and upper Austria were the power center of Habsburgs. So um, that brings us up to the early 19th century, uh, right around the time when one Anton, Anton Treya enters the scene in Stechat. And we know that history, how much of that do we want to go over? Um, I think uh, for, so uh, you're, the, you're, the, you're the expert, but um, my understanding, I think this is, is relevant is, um, my understanding is that, so Schwecket is a suburb of Vienna. Mm -hmm. That brewery was brewing ales uh, under his father. Um, yep. is, that, is that correct? So I think we should maybe mention that and talk about Lager brewing was not a thing that was happening in Austria. Is that am I to understand that? And, and we're talking like the the early early part of the 19th century. In that part of Austria, at any rate, uh, uh, parts of Austria that were closer to Bavaria, maybe bordered Bohemia, bordered um, um, Bavaria. Uh, they, to the best of my knowledge, uh, were brewing lagers already. But in fact, in Vienna and probably in the villages and towns surrounding Vienna, uh, people were brewing top fermented beer. And uh, it was beer that was uh, um, not, <laughs> not, by all accounts, not the best beer in the world. And that's also because of the, uh, the, the guild restrictions that you know, we're only starting to loosen at the time. They hadn't been completely, the guilds hadn't been abolished yet. So it was very difficult for someone like a young, on Anton Drea to really kind of uh, um, like, I guess, um, put into effect what he'd learned uh, with Selamaya and, you know, his tour, his grand tour of Europe kind of thing. Um, so but, let me just ask a question then to set this up. So uh, brewing is very weak because of the guild. Brewing is also uh, probably from a market perspective, competing with wine. Uh, which sounds like it's a more dominant uh, thing. So mm -hmm. 
Beer, beer is, uh, <laughs> beer by the, that one, in this period, beer is not a big deal in Vienna. It was kind of for a lot of reasons. It, it, it is starting to become a big deal. And this, okay. uh, I can use <clears throat> the, the history of the Odekringer Brewery in Vienna as kind of a case study of, of how this came to be. So awesome. um, if you've been to Vienna, um, do you, we, we, we went to the Odekringer Brewery, didn't we? Okay, yeah, we did. We did. So memorable to me. What's that? It was very memorable to me. Okay. Um, so yeah. So that you know, old nineteenth century brewery. You know, they even have the 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 cowling above the the former uh, maltings and things like that. Um, well, Odecran, the what where that brewery now stands uh, used to be farmland, and uh, it was a farmland that uh, uh, produced grapes. Uh, dairy, that kind of thing. Um, but as a result of a, a couple things, um, a few fires, which kind of pushed Odekring westwards, and also some uh, relaxation of uh, like so. Vienna, as a result of the uh, the first and second Ottoman sieges, in particular the uh, second Ottoman siege of 1683. Um, if you've ever been in Vienna and ridden around on some of the uh, um, the subways like the U6, the, the U4, they all follow the old customs wall, the Linian wall. So drinking beer um, and that stuff and that kind of thing was a lot cheaper on the other side in Odekring. So Odekring at the time in the early 18th century exploded as a place of drinking. Um, and so they, need, especially beer, um, also, um, Wine was more expensive for the working classes and also wasn't really that good at the time either, by all accounts. So they needed someone to produce beer. Um, Ender Odekring, um, basically, uh, as a result of uh, some fires in Western Odekring, the, uh, the gravity shifted uh, eastwards toward the center of Vienna. Um, in 1837, they built a brewery there. Uh, it becomes very, very popular. Uh, they also, because breweries at the time, um, brewers are starting not quite in 1837, but they're starting to uh, think about uh, uh, steam engines. They're starting to think about uh, um, different other technologies that they can introduce because you know this this information is circulating around Central Europe at the time. Um, they they start to expand rapidly. What happens? They also need workers. Uh, the Odekringer Brewery, and this is also important for when we talk about craft beer today, uh, the Odekringer Brewery um, was at the forefront of um, building housing for workers, um, having like uh, meal programs for workers, this kind of thing. So they had the goodwill of workers. Um, they grew and they grew. More and more workers flocked to that district. More and more Vietzhäuser or taverns opened up and we have beer very rapidly eclipse wine in terms of demand. This is also around the same time, incidentally, 18, you know, that Drea is coming back from his world tour. 1841, the first Vienna lager is tapped, um, big party ensued, and uh, the rest is, is history in that sense. So let me, so I, I, I'm familiar with, and I think maybe many listeners are kind of familiar with the history of, of Dreher and mm -hmm. uh, the 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 evolution of his Vienna Lager. I'm I'm curious if you happen to know, was Vienna Lager uh, did it become a city thing that other people made like outside of the Schweckater Brewery? Uh, what was going on? Was um, you know in in between the period of 1841 and then we'll get we'll get to World War One and what happened after that. Mm -hmm. But what in that period, what was beer doing? Was it all Vienna Lager or what else was going on? Um, that I can't answer. Um completely accurately. Uh, I know that uh, Odekring has been, we have records of Odekring brewing a Vienna lager from at least the 1890s, and I'm gonna assume since much earlier. Sure. I mean, what, one thing to keep in mind is uh, Vienna lager, as you know, uh, just completely swept Europe at the time. Um, right. it, was, it was one of the most popular beer styles um, along with, uh, um, that beer from Pilsner, from Pilsner. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which came a year later, but it actually seems to me like uh, Vienna Lager was kind of the, 
the in the first decades after those two beers debuted, it was actually Vienna mm -hmm. Lager that was really the one that that was um, more because of Vienna's stature. Uh, it, it seems like more people were learning about Vienna Lager than Pilsner. Is that is that also true outside of uh, the countries they were made? That um, that may well be true. I mean, Vienna did cast a pretty like it was uh, the the center of a vast empire. Uh, yeah. Dringer, uh, became a very rich man very quickly, right? But but also you know another uh, a number of other breweries um, opened up in the area as well. I mean I mentioned uh, Odekring, which is to this day the largest brewery in Vienna. Uh, there were breweries in a um, uh, an area of, now an area of Vienna called Saint Mark's, also in Simmering, um, uh, in Leasing. Uh, various other places, and these became very large breweries as well. And I'm going to assume, but big caveat here, um, I'm not a historian of Austrian beer, although right. I live in Vienna. Um, I'm going to assume that uh, there is probably not a small amount of Vienna lager being brewed. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating lacuna in the historical record. And I'm uh, having visited Vienna now and talked to you about this, I'm, I'm shocked that of the lager brewing countries, we have such veneration for the traditions in, uh, 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 of course, the Czech Republic where it started and Bavaria where it came from. Uh, right. uh, and, and, uh, and people really overlook, you know, I mean, people are digging very deeply into things like uh, you know, tamaves or obscure beers, Horner beer and stuff like that. But yeah. but but we don't actually know nearly as much about Austrian beer, which is kind of a fascinating thing, given um, that, you know, the Dreyer Brewery uh, was so successful, it grew very big, um, mm -hmm. others grew big. And we may touch on this later, but um, Vienna or Austria is a place where barley is grown, uh, uh, hops are grown, yep. uh, malt houses. So it was completely self-contained as well um mm -hmm. it's a really important brewing history or brewing country and and the history is really um one of those weird it, it's one it, it's a thing we don't know that much about so we need we need one of these <clears throat> historian or or just people with time on their hands to do the work of the historians and get in there and find out go to Otak Ringer, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, and Schweketer and all the breweries that were around back then and find out what they were brewing because uh, we don't really know that much. But yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead. That, 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 that is fascinating because I just wanted to point out very quickly um, in uh, you know, just so sort of doing a bit of reading around for, uh, uh, for today, um, I was looking in uh, John P. Arnold's Origin History of Beer and Brewing, which was published in the early 20th century. Um, and what I found fascinating is that uh, you know, he dedicates um, uh, <clears throat> several, several, several um, hundreds of pages to uh, brewing in uh, in Germany, and uh, he spends a mere uh, fourteen pages on Austria, and half of that is Bohemia, which was at the time part of the Habsburg Empire. Right. Right. Fascinating. All yeah. right. Well, since we since we don't have a whole lot of data uh, before the modern era, um, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the the Austria that we find now, the beer scene that we find now, started to develop um, around the 1920s. Is that right? Um, where <clears throat> the current style of beer uh, became more and more popular and, and began to displace Vienna Lager or whatever was before. Is that true? Or when would you date that to? Oh, so are we talking specifically Mertzen now, Austrian Mertzen? Yeah. Um, I didn't want to use, I, I was going to have you un, un, unfurl that history. So I was trying not to say which style it was. But yeah, so that's what I'm trying okay. to allude to. Okay, so <clears throat> Austrian Mertzen. Um, it's one of those things where uh, if if you've never been to Austria, the one thing you'll find out very quickly is the minute you sit down, in Austria and order a beer, you're gonna get, well, let's say one out of two times, you're gonna get a Meritzen. Over 50% of the beer sold in Austria today is a Meritzen. But maybe, <laughs> maybe like looking at it and it looks for all intents and purposes like a Hellas or if you have, you know, 
certain visual acuity, maybe it looks a little bit like um, a an export or a special. Like, right, it's a little bit more golden than a Hellas. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's 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 a it's an it's an utter anomaly in um, you know in in this this whole sort of compendium of what we call beer styles. Um, but it also has has a pretty interesting history, uh, and it's actually a history that starts in the post-war period. Okay. Yeah. So. Prior post which war? Are you talking post World oh, War II? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Whenever I say post war, I mean post World War II. But it could be post World War One or post Napoleonic Wars. Or <laughs> I, I mentioned that merely because I had just referenced the twenties, so I wanted to clarify which war we're talking. Okay. About. Yeah. No, there's a lot of post wars in Europe, so yeah. <laughs> we're talking post World War Two. Um, but just just to sort of <clears throat> step back for a moment, I mean, one thing that I kind of found interesting. Um, when you asked me uh, about uh, um, doing this podcast, because I hadn't really thought of like, where is that? It's, it's kind of like one of these things where like you live in Austria, you drink a Meritzen. It kind of tastes like a Hellas. You don't really think about it. It's good. Like, you know, <laughs> like, and yeah. so you're sort of like, it's good, but it's a little bit bizarre that you're drinking a beer that effectively tastes like a Hellas, but it's called a Meritzen. It's very weird for, for people yeah. who are familiar with what a Meritzen is elsewhere. It's very weird to go there. I, I went through a, 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 a phase of confusion. Yeah. And yeah, one, one would be rightfully confused. Um, but to, again, to stay, take, a, take a step back to uh, the pre-war period, um, actually pre-World War I as well, um, Meritzen was a style that, uh, and I'm I'm relying on uh, Conrad Seidel for this. Conrad Seidel, for anyone who doesn't know, is uh, um, probably one of the most prominent beer writers in Austria. And um, so he also, being Austrian, is kind of wondering what's going on with, the, with his beer style. So he looked at some... Uh, um, some brewing texts from the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And what he could come up with was that the Austrian Meritzen at that time was more or less the same thing as a Bavarian Meritzen. And what was a Bavarian Meritzen at the time? Um, and again, styles are fluid, pardon the pun. Uh, <laughs> right. the, uh, the, the Bavarian Meritzen at the time was a beer that had been released in 1872 by Josef Zettelmeier, not Gabriel, as some people think, but Josef Zettelmeier. Um, and it was a beer that was very close to a Vienna lager, but not quite. It's more of a tribute beer. And uh, it was brewed um, to uh, a starting gravity of about 15 or 15 and a half Plato, which gets you almost into Bach territory. Right, so, pretty strong beer. Yeah, it was, it was a lot stronger than it is today. Well, than than the what we call a Meritzen today, which has to by law has to start at. Don't quote me here. Thirteen Plato or thirteen and a half Plato somewhere. Around, I think thirteen Plato is where Meritzen starts. About a uh, ten fifty two, um, crap like specific gravity. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a beer that had a reputation as being a special beer for festivals. It was the festival beer par excellence. And by all accounts, it kind of remained this way in Vienna or in, in Austria and in Vienna, uh, right up until the, the post-war period. Well, probably with a little bit of lull, a bit of a lull during World War One and World right. War II. Yeah. Uh, so we get to the post-war period, and this is what where what's really fascinating is think about Austria in the post-war period. It has just been bombed, not quite to smithereens like places like Dresden, but uh, it had sustained pretty heavy damage. Uh, people were, were starving. People were foraging in the countryside for food. Uh, people were reduced to eating um, peas and lentils and basically whatever you could uh, um whatever you could find. Uh, they're drinking ersatz coffee uh, and beer was more or less 
non-existent. Uh, black markets were the order of the day. Um, and um, <laughs> this is, um, I'm also drawing here on, because I, uh, the, the ISing, I, I teach a course on the cultural history of food and drink, and we have mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, a module on uh, food and food shortages and the immediate post-war. So it's interesting how this sort of slots in here. Um, by 1947, um, nearly 45% of food in Vienna um, was delivered by the Red Cross and the, Ameri uh, the uh, United Nations um, UNRWA, I forget what the, uh, um, the acronym stands for, uh, and also um, the American uh, Care Program. So this is something that, that is, you know, it's been, it's, it's left an indelible mark in uh, um, Viennese and Austrian collective memory. Uh, the, the role that, uh, in particular, the Americans played in um, feeding the Viennese and the Austrians in the post-war, the immediate post-war period. Uh, it was also a time, you know, as I said, it was a time of um, rationing uh, and it was also a time of uh, price regulation. So enter beer into this story. The workers had become, again, recently strong in Vienna. So between 1919 and 1934, when there was a civil war in Austria, uh, Vienna was uh, um, was governed by the Social Democrats, Socialists. It's called Red Vienna. Um, so now um, the, the Austro-Fascists, the Nazis have been completely discredited. The Social Democrats step back into the fray. Uh, they're regulating prices of milk, of bread, of cigarettes, and this, that, and the other. Um, but they're also sympathetic to the workers who they want their beer. So right. uh, workers' representatives uh, struck a deal with a, a committee of the uh, Austrian National Assembly that allowed also, because Mertzen, remember, Mertzen was considered the Festivier par excellence, right. um, struck a deal that allowed the Austrian brewers to brew a Mertzen and call it such. So it could be a festive beer and people would feel good, you know, like um, beer makes you feel good, but, he, you know, drinking better beer makes it feel even better. Um, stipulation was you could only brew it to 12 degrees Plato. So okay. about 1048 specific gravity. Um, and I suspect, although I would need to do more research on this, I suspect this is also when Meritzen became lighter. Now, the loophole was to make it more affordable for the working classes, um, the, the committee that was responsible for regulating prices also let the brewers charge a little bit more for their more common beers. Um, like basically their, their standard lager beers kind of thing or whatever else they might have been brewing, um, which basically made, you know, equaled out the differences between um, Ameritzen and more common beer. But at the same time, Meritzen, um became a bit of a, well, it became a weaker beer. But right. I mean, 12 degrees Plato is no like dun beer or thin beer. So people loved it. and. Uh, they loved it so much that, um, you know, by, geez, I um, might have this a bit wrong, but by the 1970s, it was um, the beer of, of Austria. And so that's sort of where we are today. Um, and, it, and it remains so. When you when you go to Austria now, you just find this beer everywhere. Um, you were great to take me to a pub or a, like a restaurant pub, um, not a beer place, just mm -hmm. so we could have this experience. And uh, just, you know, the kind of the common drink. Um, and I was impressed at how, how wonderful these beers are. If a craft brewer were to release, uh, I mean, they vary, of course, but uh, in the main, um, if a craft brewer released this exact same beer and, and call it something cool, I think people got kind of go crazy. You know, they're very, uh, they're very flavorful. They have a lovely malt. Of course, they distinguish themselves, so they vary a little bit. Some are hoppier, some are less hoppy. Some have a different malt character. Um, but they're quite characterful for what they are, you know, in, in the vein, as you said, of Hellas's. Uh, it, it's not, and they are the, they're mass market beers in the sense that many of the companies make a lot of them, but they're quite flavorful. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting thing that I don't think people really, 
uh, would tumble to is how how tasty they are. Yeah, no, they they and this is you know I think to the um, the chagrin of Austrian brewers who have been um, been trying now for for decades to actually have it recognized as a distinct style. Uh, it's 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 been difficult. It's been difficult going because precisely because uh, I mean if if you look at the uh, the numbers for most any medicine today, they run between eleven point eight and twelve Plato. Mm-hmm. They all sort of clock in between five and five point two percent ABV. Um, so yeah, they're they're a lot like uh, um, your standard Hellas, and especially and another thing too, because um, there's another thing I, I I found out recently is that apparently up until um, about thirty years ago, uh, the the Meritsons the Austrian Meritsons were brewed with rice as a means to get more, well, as we, we all know, to get of more alcohol in it. And, to, and so, and then brewers are just like, you know, th- this sort of, I think, dovetails with the uh, the Hausbrauerei revolution in Germany, Austria, where you have these like brew pubs that are starting to stick it to the man, so to speak. Um, at that time, they, they start springing up in the, the 80s and 90s, but they're, they're still brewing more or less your traditional Central European styles, but they're doing it um, basically with more malt and hops and um, all that kind of thing. So I think at that time, uh, a lot of the larger brewers like uh, Gusa were, um, I don't know how you'd say that in English, Gosser, <laughs> um, G-O-S-S-E-R, just started doing all malt. And as a result, the beer started tasting a lot more like a Hellas even than they did. 30 years ago. So. so most of these beers now are made with all malt. There's not, they're not rice beers at all anymore. As far as I know, no, I think, yeah. I think they're pretty much all, all malt. One thing that I found fascinating to shift gears to kind of the modern period, two things that I found fascinating, and I'd like you to comment on this. Uh, one is that I went to Vienna because I wanted to go to the Schweiketer Brewery and see what I could see there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also wanted to, you know, I also imagined that the namesake of a famous beer style that's relatively common in the United States would have some presence mm-hmm. in in its home, in the city of its birth. And mm-hmm. I was shocked to find that that's not entirely true. Um, and then the other thing I was kind of interested in, and maybe this has changed in those four years, but uh, craft beer does not seem to be as robust as it is in some other countries. So will you describe what's going on at if those two things are still accurate and what's going on? Well, first, um, um, as far as uh, Vienna Lager goes, um, it's certainly not on every street corner, but I think when when you wrote your article for Beer and Brewing, I think it was on Vienna Lager, um, I think you undersold the prevalence of Vienna Lager in um, Vienna and Austria. There are actually a number of breweries um, starting, uh, starting in the 2000, early 2010s, um, it started brewing, um, Vienna lager and it, I wouldn't say it, uh, um, took off like a barn on fire, but, uh, this, the style did become more prevalent and, um, even more so in when Schwechat, um, so what, 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 what you may or may not know, Schwechat, um, kind of had a reputation um, up until very recently as producing just absolute swill. Like they were the cheapest, like their, their lager beers, the cheapest. And, you know, and it was just like, they were, like, they were the natural light of, uh, of Austria. They, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> they, so, but um, um, uh, what, what's his name? Um, Andres Urban, um, the, the head brewer there uh, introduced a, a Zwickel, um in sometime in the 2010s, really, it's one of my favorite Zwickels. It's so good. Yeah, it is. Um, really good. Uh, and then uh, for the uh, 175th anniversary of uh, Dreyer's Vienna Lager, he, or they, the Schwechater Brewery and Andres Urban, uh, introduced the their classic Wiener Lager, um, which is, <laughs> it's one of those beers I have a, I have about three or four beers that, you know, whenever I get off the plane in Vienna, before I'm even at the place where I'm staying, I've stopped off at a 
at a spa local supermarket and I've picked up um you know Vienna Lager is one of them. it's it's a really good beer I totally agree with you it is a tremendous beer and there's not anything that you can identify about it that makes it puts it over the top other than it just is the it's just everything is perfect about it and um uh for people who live in the uh, the Northwest, you may know Nat West, uh, Reverend Nats. He is also a fanatic, and we both share a passion for this beer. And if ever, either either of us find it or get a hold of it, we 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 get on, we, we throw up the bat signal. It's a really good beer. Yeah, yeah, and well, I guess un- unfortunately for international distribution, they they bottle it in green bottles, so it's not not gonna. I mean, people drink it quickly in, in Vienna, yeah. so it, it is. And and it does have um, distribution in places like Spa, which is on every street corner in in Vienna. Um, so so sort of getting back to the the the, the questions you asked a few minutes ago, I think it is a a little bit more prevalent than what you might give it credit for. Um, although, yeah, it's not on every Vietzels beer menu kind of thing. But it is, you know, it, it's like they're. Um, at, at last count, uh, um, there were 15 large and craft breweries brewing a, a Vienna lager. Um, so that's, it's a nice, tidy little selection. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean to undersell it. It's just, um, it was surprising to me to find. I just, I assumed it would be a, like, you know, oh, no. we would have an example and it would, you know, but no, no, that's no, not. no, no, not, not, it's not quite like that. But uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's undergone a, a modest renaissance in the past uh, um, seven to 10 years. And it's cool too, that because it has its own lineage of, of brewing mm-hmm. that does not, has not been filtered through the North American uh, Vienna lager tradition. Um, it really is something like uh, what you would hope a full flavored lager would be. And um, it's, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Yeah, uh, so I, 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 I would say just just really quickly, apropos of that, um, how good the uh, Schwechate Vienna Lage is. Um, if you, if if you if anyone listening gets a chance to go to Vienna, um, get the the Schwechate Vienna the Schwech Schwech I'm trying to <laughs> Wiener Lager. Um, and, uh, <laughs> the uh, the Ode the Ode original original uh the original is um brewed to their i believe 1892 recipe and uh they're a study in subtle contrasts both wonderful beers but uh you sort of see the the um the schwechate version is a more caramelly um more toasty whereas the uh um the odekringer version is um a little bit more drier and uh Sufig, as the Germans say, coughable. A um, little bit more of a hot presence too. One thing we didn't touch on, which we should definitely not pass. If you were to recommend somebody who's in Austria and is looking for one of the good local Americans, which which ones do you like? <laughs> I have a, a little anecdote about um, what what drew me to Märzen in the first place. It was back in uh, 1995 when I was living in Salzburg and working as a sound and music tour guide. Um, right. I uh, I didn't, I didn't know a ton of, I didn't know, sweet all actually about Austrian beer at the time, but I knew I like beer because I, you know, I'd, I'd been to Germany a few years before and um, had learned about good beer and spent some time in Belgium, but I didn't know my ass from my elbow. So I, uh, I went out to the, the local supermarket wanting some beer um, and my favorite color is green. So I bought the Gosser because it's green. It's green label, green can. Um, and that's that's kind of well, it's it's widely available. And actually, you know, just just to just to show just how popular the style is, it's it constitutes 70% of the production of uh Gosser right now. Um so very popular beer. It's everywhere, and I like green, so that's why I bought it, and that's why I still buy it. Um yeah. <laughs> um but uh other ones if you're if you're looking and they'll they'll be a little bit harder to find but uh murawa m u r a 
A-U-E-R, Murauer. Uh, so they're, they're from uh, uh, the town of Murau in, uh, um, the, in Upper Styria, which is just over the mountains from Vienna. Um, they brew an amazing Meritzen. Um, it's probably one of my favorite. Um, just, it's just a little bit like the, the, the good Samaritan is just very light. It's, you know, effervescent, got a little bit of a, you know, a spicy floral hop character. It's just well-balanced. Just kind of, um, but the, uh, um, the, the Murawa sort of goes more in the direction of what you'd expect from a, a, a more intense Hellas, even sort of something approaching like a Spezial or a, an export kind of thing. Uh, another one, so, so Murau, they're, they're from, uh, uh Styria or the, they call it in, in Austria. One I would recommend is uh, the Merzen from uh, uh, Villach, and V I L L A C H, and they're a brewery in, um, geez, in, in the town of Villach, actually, <laughs> which is in <laughs> Corinthia or a canton, as they say in in Austrian. So bo- both of those are are, are excellent examples and then another really nice one is uh from uh schloss uh and i never know if it's eckenberg or eckenburg um but they're the ones who now brew sami klaus and they brew a, a really nice medicine that's only 4.9 percent alcohol yeah one one thing that i remember and now i'm just asking to see if this is check my check my memory are, are mm-hmm. americans you, you mentioned um, one of them being pretty effervescent. In my yeah. memory, that's kind of a character of these, which which does differ from uh, Hellas, which is, tends to be not as effervescent. Um, is that is that right? Am I right to remember that they're very effervescent and lively? They they are for the most part. I think the ones from uh, Murau and Filach are a little less so, but uh, um, the the, the Gusser in particular is just very very effervescent, um, and that's you know it's kind of the dominant. Merchant in the field, so that that may be why you remember it because it's kind of everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Let me think. I've never had the Zipfa uh, Merchant. Zipfa Z. I'm Canadian. Z is so Z I P F E R. Zipfa. <laughs> They're also owned by Brau Union. Brau Union is a big conglomerate that owns. Uh, it's owned by Heineken, but they own Schwerhardt, Gerser, Puntigam. Uh, Tipfa and you know, a slew of other breweries in, in Austria. But, uh, you know, all, all the breweries, you know, they they brew more or less good beer. Um, as uh, apparently the, the Tipfa Mountain is one to look for. I, I love their, um, their Urtyp, U-R-T-Y-P, which is an even stronger beer. It's 4. 4, or 5.4, 5.5, but I would suspect that their Meritzen isn't bad. It's, it has a good reputation. All right. Well, we are running a little long, but do tell me oh. before we uh, before we run out of time here a little bit about uh, <laughs> uh, you have more to say. Craft. Tell me about craft beer, though. So craft. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Craft beer kind of exploded. The early folks were people like uh, Lonsium in Corinthia, Guswerk in Salzburg, um, 1516 in uh, Vienna. It's kind of an ironic name because they do nothing that is Reinheitsgebot compliant. Um, <laughs> Like, um, and a few others, and so there, there were kind of the, the the early impetus for 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 craft in in Austria, and then about 2014, 15, 16 things just like exploded, um, and there was there was this real this real sense of effervescence. Um, also, uh, Kring, um they opened their craft beer arm on on their site and i think we might have visited were there as well <clears throat> and uh i think they started that in 2014 <clears throat> excuse me and uh so things were um cruise along quite nicely nothing like berlin or hamburg for example um or you know a few other cities i could think of uh, you know even i think prague maybe has a more F, like a livelier craft scene than uh than me but things were things were taking off nicely and then kind of hit a wall um in in about 2019 uh things just really like no more breweries were opening the buzz was kind of um dying a little bit um 
and then the pandemic hit. But uh, um, since about 2022, I've, I've noticed a you know, few more. Um, I went to the, the Craft Beer Fest in Vienna um, in November of 2022. I noticed that there were a, a few more breweries starting to do some some interesting stuff. There's a, um, a brewery called a Soundgast, um, which is a, um, a nomadic uh, brewery, and they do uh, more you know, your typical North American styles, really nice IPA. Um, and uh, Bourget, which uh, does a beer that they ferment with champagne yeast and they package it. They don't, they, they're, all they do is they brew this, this one style that is like um, kind of like beer meat champagne. Um, and then there's, kind of beer. sorry? A brute kind of beer. Yeah. And then there's one more and the name slips my mind, but they're, uh, they're kind of working with, uh, with gray pale kind of stuff, which I, I find really cool. That's a whole different, uh, um, um, that's, that's going off in a, in a whole different direction from uh, <laughs> medicine and stuff. But, right. Yeah. Right. Let's sum this up. If someone were coming to Austria, what mm -hmm. would you tell them to look for, and you know, to make sure they get a good sense of what's going on in Austrian beer? Um, well, Austria writ large. First of all, I, I would assume you're arriving in Vienna. Um, you absolutely have to have um, the Schwerkarte Zwickel and their Vienna Lager. Um, you'd also probably want to try the Udekringer. Original, if, if you're interested in Vienna Lager and its history. Um, as for um, Austrian Märzen, you'll find it everywhere. Um, you won't even have to leave the airport before you find um, a can of Gösser Märzen somewhere. So, right. um, so don't, don't rush out to try Austrian Märzen. You'll find it. Um, one place I would highly recommend visiting, I mean, Austria is one of the one of the last um, kind of the last redoubts of Vietel's culture, tavern culture. So talk to a local um, and ask that person where their favorite Vietel's is. And, and so I, I won't even get in. We could talk about Vietel's for an entire podcast. Um, <laughs> they're they're awesome, but you want to you want to go to Vietel's. Uh, you also want to go to the Schweizer House, which is. Um, one of Austria's top beer gardens. It's in the Prater. I mentioned the Prater, which was um, uh, Franz, uh, not Franz Josef's, uh, Joseph II's former uh, hunting preserve. Uh, it's now uh, an amusement park. It's a lot of fun. Go hang out, <laughs> go to the Schweizer house, drink some beers, and then go on the bumper cars and the go-karts. sort of like what I always do. It's fun. Um, and uh, <laughs> the other thing, the, the, the thing you absolutely cannot miss cannot miss is the Augustina in Salzburg. And it's not the same Augustina brewery that is in Munich. Um, same order of monks, but different brewery. It's the Augustina Moon and they brew, um, they brew Ameritzen as well, but it's an outlier. It's uh, brewed to 13.5 Play-Doh, it's 5.5%. Um, Salzburg, if you've ever been there, you'll know it's, you know, you ride your bike um, five kilometers and you're in Bavaria. So um, that portion of Austria and Bavaria, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of cross-pollinization. Uh, they've even, you know, swapped hands from time to time. So, um, but that experience in itself, that beer garden, that beer hall, just the entire ritual of finding a glass, rinsing it, taking it to the person uh, who taps the keg, um, second to none. So those are my, my three or four must-do things in Austria. I have always wanted to go to that Augustiner, and uh, one of my readers was brutal when I told him I was going to go to Vienna instead of Salzburg, so I still have it <laughs> on my list. Uh, all right, uh, he is Franz Hofer. He is uh, a resident of uh, Vienna half the year, and um if if i could encourage anyone to go to a cool place that they that's off the beaten path in terms of beer culture uh austria is definitely up there in terms of very cool places and nobody goes there so yeah, yeah. you know everybody's making czech dark lagers now what we got to do is get them to make uh, some austrian merzens that's the next cool thing <laughs> there we go <laughs> yeah and come come visit come say hi when you're in vienna cool all right well thank you so much for uh enlightening us all
Thank you for having me on the podcast. And uh, we're back. Uh, I want to thank Franz again. Um, we, as I think you probably picked up when you listened to that, uh, when Franz and I start talking, we can talk for hours. And when I was recently in Oklahoma, we did. Um, and that interview could have gone on a lot longer. Franz has way more information about uh, Austria, but I think it was uh, a pretty good primer. And uh, so, Patrick, you haven't heard the interview, but we uh, we talked a lot about Austrian Merzen, which is the local style there. It's a mass market lager style, but it's called mm -hmm. Merzen. Um, and I've yeah. never seen an American craft brewery brew an Austrian Merzen. So I'm I'm putting my mark here. The first time <laughs> I see it, um, I'm going to take credit for it. So there we go. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hopefully someone will take that challenge. <laughs> and I hope someone does because it's a cool style. Excellent. Well, because of uh, the length of the interview, uh, we're forgoing uh, tasting beer and um, we do actually have mailbag entries. So thank you all very much. But uh, we're going to um, uh, not get to them today and we will get to them uh, next podcast. So um, please uh, tune in for the next one and we'll and we'll get to, to the mailbag entries. Uh, but of course, uh, we always love to hear from you. So please send your questions or comments to Jeff at beervonablog.com. Uh, he's also on Twitter and on Instagram at beer uh, at the Beervana Pod, as am I. That's a shared uh, handle. Um, he blogs the Beervana blog and he tweets at Beervana. Uh, I tweet at, at Beernomics. Um, but I've uh, I've inverted the outro. So go back and also say subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify audible or wherever you get your podcast and don't forget to rate us five stars please that helps other listeners find the show so uh that was very um interesting jeff i'll say in anticipation of actually hearing the interview <laughs> but yes. thank you very much for uh for spending all that time and I, I really look forward to listening to it very cool all right well uh until next time jeff all right patrick cheers, cheers.